Hi, folks. No gathering song today. Straight into the message. I'll try to uh, make it as easy as possible. But we're talking about conflict today. Anybody here been in a conflict in the past 24 hours? Okay, yeah, it's a lot of us. Yeah. So I was looking for some wisdom on the internet about conflict, and um, I found some I thought I would share with you. And it's kind of in the form of an, a story told by a wise old sage. You ready? Two men who lived in a small village got into a terrible dispute that they could not resolve. So they decided to talk to the village sage. The first man went to the sage's home and told his version of what happened. When he finished, the sage said, You're absolutely right. The next night, the second man called on the sage and told his side of the story. The sage responded, You're absolutely right. Afterwards, the sage's wife scolded her husband. Those men told you two totally different stories, and you told them they were absolutely right. That's impossible. They both can't be absolutely right. The sage turned to his wife and said, You're absolutely right. <laughs> so obviously... There's ways to deal with conflict, and that pretty much is a way of not dealing with it, right? That's my opening story. In the book of Philippians, we've come to a place where the Apostle Paul is going to start to talk about people individually in the church. Now, um, I would think that if you were in any particular church, you would never want the Apostle Paul mentioning your name in a letter. Uh, it certainly is the case in Philippians, at least in this part of Philippians. So uh, if you have a Bible, open up to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to start with verse 2 and go through verse 5. And this is what the Apostle Paul writes. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, I'm thinking to myself when I first read this, what kind of names are those? Yodia and Sintiki, come on. Sintichi, what? I mean, how do you... So I decided to look it up in the, the Greek New Testament, and by using at least modern Greek phrasing, their names come out a bit better. So we're going to call her Evodia. Evodia. That's how you would say it in modern Greek. Evodia. You want to say that with me? Evodia. And Sintichi. Okay? Sintichi. Say it with me. Sintichi. All right. So it's a little better, right? I don't know if you, you know, we have a few pregnant people in the congregation, so those names are up for grabs. Just want to let you know. They would be the only... Evodia or Sintiki's around, I'm sure. But they do sound, I think, more feminine. And, and it's interesting because the Apostle Paul is pleading with them both. He's, he, the, the word is patakolo. It's, it's, it's a word kind of, you know, pretty pleased in Greek uh, nowadays. But back then it was a pleading. It was like, I'm pleading with Evodia. And over here, I'm pleading with Sintichi. I'm pleading with them both separately because these two women are so far apart, you couldn't use the same word for both of them. He's got to acknowledge that they're in two separate camps. And, and, and here is the interesting thing. I, I believe the Apostle Paul, in this case, 
Not in all cases, for sure. But in this case, it's almost as important what he's not saying as what he's saying. Because we know the Apostle Paul, if you've read the New Testament, and if this was a problem that dealt with morality, he would be on that like a bee on a flower. I mean, he would be on that thing. He would be calling them out if it was about immorality. Let's say, for example... Evodia had been over at Sintiki's house and saw a teapot that she liked a lot and just managed to slip it into her purse and took it home with her. See? If that was the case, then the Apostle Paul would have been calling out this theft from a sister in the Lord and told Evodia she had to repent. By the same token, if Sintiki had been flirting with Evodia's husband and was now involved in a full-fledged affair, we would expect the Apostle Paul to say something immediately like he did in his letter to the Corinthians when he called out the young man who was sleeping with his hot stepmother. He was not shy about confronting people when it came to their immorality. Why would he not be shy about that? Because he loved them. He cared about them. He knew it hurt them, and he knew it hurt the church. So by this silence, we might be able to deduce that These ladies are not having a moral division. By the same token, it's most likely not theological either. Because if it was a theological problem, he'd be all over that one too, like he was in the Galatians, in the letter to the Galatians, about people who were trying to add certain acts to being a Christian as being necessary besides putting your faith in Christ. So let's say that Evodia was denying the work of the Holy Spirit, like there was no Holy Spirit, that was a figment of your imagination, then and that was why these two ladies were having a problem, then you can be assured Paul would be all over Evodia's case because she was teaching some kind of a wrong doctrine. If Sintihi were denying the bodily, physical death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and saying it was some kind of a metaphor for new life, for resurrection, then the Apostle Paul would have been all over her case as well. But he does none of that, as he has in various other places throughout the New Testament. So we can, I think, rightly assume that this dispute that they're having is not about theology and not about morality. So what's it about? Well, What's left except personality? What's left except something that is really not right or wrong in terms of a moral or theological sense? And and we find out more about these these women. Verse 3. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since... They have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. So he's saying right off the bat, these ladies' names are in the book of life. These ladies are saved. These are good women on bad terms. And that's the title for my message tonight, Good People on Bad Terms. These are good, good women. These are leaders in the church. They have contended it aside. They've worked alongside of Paul the Apostle when it came to the ministry there in Philippi. 
They were no slouches. They were important ladies. They were the wisest and the brightest, perhaps, of all the women who were there in Philippi. Maybe they were among the group of women to whom Paul first preached the gospel when he arrived in that area, as we read about in Acts 16. This is just one more passage that lifts up the importance of women in the church as leaders because when women don't get along, when leaders who are women do not get along, the church is in serious trouble. Serious trouble enough that Paul's got to bring it up in a letter of the whole entire church. Now, my guess is, is that the whole entire church knew about it already, which is why it didn't make a big difference whether or not he named names. My guess is, is that is the church was dividing over the problem these two women are having. So, for example, let's suppose you were a new Christian, you came into the church of Philippi, you didn't know a thing about Jesus or the church, you, you actually were involved in a bunch of crappy stuff in your own life, and Evodia took you in, put you like a little chick under her wing, and she took care of you when you were a young, stupid Christian who didn't know which way was up. She made you meals. She listened to your problems about your boyfriend or about your girlfriend. She offered advice on how to deal with the conflicts at work. Now, you would be loyal to Evodia, wouldn't you not? And by the same token, if Sintiki had done that for you, you would be loyal to her. So what happens is, is the church naturally, without even wanting to, begins to take sides because they know how well they've been treated by one or the other or even both of these women, which puts you into a terrible, terrible dilemma. Talk to people who've been involved in church splits before, and they're confused. They don't know what they're supposed to do because they love everybody. They just want people to get along. They're new Christians. They can't understand why, why mature Christians can't somehow appropriate the love of Jesus into the very relationships that Jesus has ordained in his church. I mean, seriously, it's, 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 it's a dilemma for them, not unlike the dilemma some children go through when their parents aren't getting along. They don't know whether to take mommy's side or daddy's side. They just don't know. And so the church has got a problem, and Paul's addressing it. Now, if you remember, the unity of the church was of utmost importance to the founder of the church, Jesus Christ. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus said, let them be one as, as you and I are one, Father. Jesus said that they'll know that you're mine by the way you love one another. So, so unity is a really big deal to Jesus. It's huge. It's huge. As I was preparing for this sermon, I uh, read a quote in a commentary by a guy named Frank Thielman. And this is what he said. I thought it was fascinating. He said, in the modern church, no dichotomy can exist between what we believe and what we practice. I mean, we all know that, right? Isn't the church constantly being harangued by people who, who say, oh, you Christians, you don't really practice what you preach. You Christians are all talk and no walk. You, the church is full of hypocrites. I mean, we know this is important, right? 
So this is what he says. Frank says, If we believe that God is the creator of heaven and earth, we cannot exploit his creation in ways that dishonor him. If anybody gets this, people at Scum of the Earth get this. You cannot treat the planet like a giant garbage can and honor God. You just can't. Why? Because he made it. And he gave it to us, and we're supposed to be the ones stewarding this creation and keeping it as best we can, not only for future generations, but to honor him and his creation. It's like being the curator at the Louvre or at the British Museum and having this priceless painting that you're in charge of keeping intact, right? People at Scum understand that. And so for us, it will be unthinkable to call God the creator of heavens and earth and then to dishonor his creation by treating it poorly. If we believe in the forgiveness of sins through the death of Jesus Christ, then we cannot refuse to forgive the sins of others. We know this. We understand that no matter how hard it is, no matter how badly that we have been hurt by somebody else, that Jesus calls us to forgive that person because we have received so great a forgiveness. Every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray that judgment upon ourselves. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We know that there is a connection and that you cannot honor God by not forgiving somebody else because you have received such a great forgiveness. If we believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting, then we cannot grieve over death as if we had no hope. But especially in light of this passage, if we believe in the holy, universal church and in the communion of saints, then when relationships within the church are broken, we must work for their reconciliation. It should be unthinkable to confess our faith, but to refuse to associate with brothers and sisters across the church aisle. It should be ridiculous. Now, you know, I've been around long enough. I've seen plenty of church disputes. And I understand that sometimes you really can't stand each other and you need to be separated for a while. Just like I had to put my kids in a separate part of the house during timeouts when they were pulling each other's hair out or punching each other in the face or throwing each other through plate glass windows, as was the case in our house. Anyway... So you've got to separate them for a while for their own safety. And, and I've told people at Scum, I've said, okay, I'll tell you what. You come to morning service and you come to night service. I don't want you to be bereft of community during this difficult time. We're all here for you. But you know what? It might be better if we just were in separate corners of the church for a little while. Because, you know, you can't play nice. I remember back uh, when we were at the toll gate, I remember fight night. We were having the meal, just like we do now, in the middle of the service. And it's part of our worship, right? It's, it's fellowship. It's, it's where we get together and we eat you know, at the Lord's table, so to speak. We share lives with one another. And this goth guy and this punk guy decided to get into a fist fight in the middle of the dinner. And they're rolling around on the floor, tearing each other's clothes and punching Mary was right there watching the whole thing. Um, all of a sudden, the, uh, the punk guy gets up, takes off out of the church, running down the sidewalk on Colfax with the goth in hot, hot pursuit. Meanwhile, I am running down the stairs from, ups, from upstairs. I finally catch up to the goth guy. I stop him. I say, you stay right here. Don't move. And I run down the street to find the punk guy hiding behind a dumpster in an alley. And... Um, I coaxed him out, brought him back to the toll gate where we were meeting, and I sat there on the sidewalk like a dad with two sons saying, okay, guys, here's the deal. You can't go back in and worship while you're holding a grudge against your brother. The Lord says, Jesus says, what are you doing 
If you hold something against your brother, leave your gift at the altar. Don't even go into church. First, go be reconciled to your brother and then go worship God because otherwise it's a freaking sham. They didn't use those words. Those are my interpretations of Jesus' words based upon other Old Testament texts. But we won't go into that exegesis at the moment. So, um, so we sat there until these two guys could put aside their differences, we could walk in the church. And the truth was, it kind of got comical, because at one point, the goth guy, is he started the fight. He was overly repentant, and literally got on his hands and knees and was kissing the boots of the punk. And I'm standing there going, well, well you don't have to do that, really. Uh, you know, a handshake would do. Um, So unity is a big deal. It's a huge deal. And um, the Apostle Paul talks about it other places. If you go to Romans 12, verse 18. Now he's talking to the Roman church now, right? Church in Rome. If you didn't know, that's where the Vatican is now. He says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you. Now, Paul is, is realizing that it doesn't always all just depend on you. But what you are responsible for is your own stuff, your own feelings, your own thoughts, your own words, your own deeds. Live at peace with everyone. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul gets even more specific And uh, I'm going to read you the whole verse. I'll try here. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things in this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? He goes on to say, I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. But you are washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The bottom line, the Apostle Paul is saying, look, unity is so important that it's okay for you to take it on the chin. I mean, if you can take it in the chin, if you can follow in the example in the footsteps of Jesus, who took it in the hands and the feet and the side and the head, then do so. If you can say, like Jesus, Father, forgive him, Father, forgive her, because he or she does not know what they're doing. And do so. Do so. That's the very last straw. Just take it if you can take it. Isn't it rather better to be wrong than to cause division in the church of Jesus Christ? I mean, this is a direct command from the big boss is to, to be one. But Evodia and Sintiki have not been able to do that. They have gone from a disagreement to a feud. And in my further research on the Internet, I found eight easy steps to turn a disagreement into a feud. Number one, be sure to develop and maintain a healthy fear of conflict letting your own feelings build up so that you are in an explosive frame of mind. 
In other words, don't deal with the problem. Just stuff it down. Keep stuffing it down. Whenever the problem comes up, just push it down until the pressure builds and builds and builds until you blow up like a volcano. I know none of this ever happens with you married people. I know none of this ever happens with you roommates. But this is one surefire way to turn a slight disagreement into an open feud. Is just be a volcano. Never deal with it. Just push it down until you can't take it anymore. Number two. If you must state your concerns, be as vague and as general as possible. Then the other person cannot do anything practical to change the situation. Because you want to be nice. You want them to read your mind and somehow get it without you having to spell it out. Because if you spell it out, there may be a chance you've got to talk about it. And that just frightens the crap out of you. So let's just be vague until they get it. But then when they don't get it, you say it another way in a vague way, and they still don't get it, and then the next thing I know, you're a volcano and you're erupting. Number three, how to turn a disagreement into a feud. Assume you know all the facts and you are totally right. The use of a clinching Bible verse here is very helpful. (laughs) Speak prophetically for truth and justice. Do most of the talking using the phrase, thus saith the Lord. (laughs) I don't know any better way to piss people off than to start pulling Bible verses out to substantiate your point of view when it is neither theological or moral. Number four. With a touch of defiance, announce your willingness to talk with anyone who wishes to discuss the problem with you, but do not take steps to initiate such a conversation with the person you're upset with. Okay, so, um, you know, you know, you've seen people do this um, in prayer time, you know, as you're sitting around a circle. You know, you're in a small group, and let's say Steve has got a problem with Bob, and so Steve prays, and Lord... Lord, I pray that you would be with Bob and help him to realize how selfish he is being in this situation. Lord, Lord, open his mind. It's so closed right now. He needs you so badly. In Jesus' name, amen. So, you know, that's the kind of prayer that Christians pray that helps you turn a disagreement into a feud. All right. Number five, latch tenaciously onto whatever evidence you can find that shows the other person is merely jealous of you. Because that's why they're being such a pain, because they really want to be you, but they can't be you, and so they hate you for being you. Number six, judge the motivation of the other party or any previous experience that showed failure or unkindness. Keep track of any angry words. In other words, you keep a list, you keep a record of their wrongs, and you keep it in your back pocket. Everything else they've ever done that's really screwed up, right? Because somehow that has bearings on your particular argument because, you know, They were mean to their mom or their grandmother when they were five. That has. This is a way to turn a disagreement into a feud. Number seven, if the discussion should alas become serious, view the issue as a win-lose struggle, avoid possible solutions, and go for total victory and unconditional surrender. Don't get too many options on the table. Yeah, this 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 is so us, really. This is so us. We're involved in a dispute with somebody. It could be anything. Um, There was a situation one time when uh, Reese, the founding co-pastor, and I were in a disagreement about money I had spent to buy a keyboard for scum. 
And um, the way I was looking at it was black or white. Either we buy a keyboard for people who can't afford to play it, the worship leaders in our midst, or, 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 or we're just telling them they can't play. I mean, for me, it was a black and white issue. There's only two options, keyboard or no keyboard. We're spending the hundreds of dollars we need to spend. And so I buy it when he's gone on tour. (laughs) Man, we had a disagreement when he came back. And to Reese's credit, I mean, I I was being such a jerk, I think, in retrospect now. He did, honestly, the only thing he could do, which was take it on the chin. Bottom line, okay, I'm going to let this one go. I think, you know, Reese had been involved in churches perhaps where he was concerned about how people were spending money. Uh, maybe the, the senior pastor had too much power to do those kinds of things uh, and did it just uh, capriciously. And so he was trying to protect the church from that kind of a scenario. Um, we never dealt with the other options that there could have been, which would have been renting a keyboard, borrowing a keyboard from somebody else, um, you know, taking the keyboard I bought back, getting the cash and buying a, a later, another one. I mean, like working it out. I mean, there were so many things we could have done that I just didn't do. And I just want to say that, that I turned what could have been a minor, minor deal into a bigger deal and made Reese finally take the only avenue he could take, which was to rather be wronged in his eyes. Number eight, pass the buck. If you're about to get cornered into a solution, indicate you are without power to settle. You need your partner, your spouse, your bank, whatever. When you see yourself losing ground in a negotiation, back out by saying, well, I really can't make the decision right now. Just simply refuse to reconcile. Let's finish the scripture. Paul says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now we've heard Paul say, Rejoice in the Lord before in Philippians. He said it was a safeguard to us in the past. Like, if you're, if you're happy about being in Jesus, it'll stop you from being a jerk, really, is what he was saying earlier. And I think he's saying somewhat the same here. Rejoice in the Lord. Keep your focus on Jesus. Keep the main thing the main thing. And let me, let me say this, because I know you're not listening to me. I will say it again. Rejoice in the Lord. Like he's presupposing that his hearers are not getting it. All right, so Paul was saying over again, look, you don't understand how much joy in the Lord is important for your walk, not only for you individually, but you corporately as a body of believers. If you're not happy in Jesus, if you're not focused on Christ, then you know what? You're not, it's not going to work. Rejoice in the Lord. When you're busy being grateful for what God has done for you, for what He's done in the church, you're not going to have these stupid little squabbles. Rejoice in the Lord. And then let your gentleness be evident to all, because the Lord is near. I don't think He was saying, like, you know, Jesus is outside the door waiting, about ready to come in and kick some butt. I don't think He means that. I don't think he means that uh, necessarily that Jesus' return is imminent, although I think that could be a possibility here. I think what he's saying is Jesus knows what's going on. He's close by. When there's two or three gathered together, there he is among you. How do you think this makes him feel? Do it for him. Keep the main thing the main thing. So, divisions are a big deal. You ever heard the phrase, there's, there's no private leaks in a boat? 
Let me say that again. There's no private leaks in a boat. If you're in a boat with 10 other people and there's a leak under your seat, it's not just your leak. It's everybody's leak. If there are people in this church who aren't getting along, it's not just their problem. It's everybody's problem. There it is. When, uh, when I took a job, I, I was uh, working at, at uh, okay, I was working at the radio station. That's what I was doing. I was working at the radio station. I was writing commercials. I was selling airtime. I had a part-time job at night as a UPS package car washer. And um, uh, about that time, uh, God started calling me back into ministry. I, I got a call from a church. They wanted me to be their, their, their youth director, part-time. Now, if I had to choose between washing package cars at UPS at night and being a youth director, you know, like, you know, that means like all night lock-ins with pizza and, you know, going to games and playing stupid relay races, I would pick the youth pastor thing every time. Plus, I like talking about Jesus a lot. But anyway, so, so I took the job. The problem was, is they already had a volunteer youth director. And how do you think he felt about my arrival? Because now I'm getting paid part-time to do the job that he's been doing for free. We had a conflict on our hands. He didn't like me coming in. I didn't blame him. Uh, and part of the reason was he'd been working with these senior high kids for quite some time. And normally when you're the new paid youth guy, you're going to work with the senior high group, Right. And so I'm thinking, okay, how do I do this, Lord? How do I don't how do I keep this guy in the church? They're such a valuable couple. They're so cool. I mean, Lord, I don't want to blow it. Because, you know, if, if there's a problem here, it's everybody's problem. It's gonna affect the kids, it's gonna affect the parents, it's eventually gonna affect the staff. Uh, so so what um, I decided to do was I decided to figure out what options there might be. We sat down, we talked. I found out where his heart was. I said, fine, I'll tell you what. I will take the junior high group. You take the senior high group. Here's a clue. I never in my life wanted to work with junior high kids. I mean, ever. Even, even when it came to you know, me going through school to be a teacher, I said, I'll do grade school, I'll do high school. You keep me out of those middle schools. Those kids are crazy. They're hormone-laden, not mature, nutty. That's what I thought. And, um, you know, so, so I take on the junior high ministry. Let me tell you where I learned to pray with my eyes open. Junior high ministry. Because I made the mistake of closing my eyes to pray, and then five kids are gone. And there's all these wads of paper all over the floor. I'm going, how could that happen in my two-minute prayer? These are the things you learn in junior high ministry, how to pray with your eyes open. So I did junior high ministry. You know, i got to tell you something. That couple was so grateful. And, you know, I was there for years, so we moved around, blah, 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 blah. After a while, he took the sixth and fifth and sixth graders, and I ended up doing senior high. We had somebody else do middle school. And those people were among my very first supporters here at Scum of the Earth, that couple, Jim and Ann Tanike, and they are still my supporters at Scum of the Earth. You see, unity is important, even if it means agreeing to a decision that you don't quite totally agree with. I mean, if you come to Scum of the Earth Church and you've got a vision for how Scum of the Earth Church should be, and it slightly differs from the vision that, let's say, I have or the staff has. The question is, can we get along? Can we get along? Can, can we somehow do this? Is unity more important than getting our own way sometimes? I mean, you all know, I did not want to call this place Scum of the Earth Church. I thought, what a stupid name. Why would anybody want to call themselves that? All right? But... It's proof that I'm not that cool, is it not? And, and I, I just submitted to the 20-some-year-olds in my 
in my living room. I submitted to them. I'd say, okay, fine. We'll call it scum of the earth. Oh, crap. What am I going to do now? <laughs> I'm the one that's got to raise support. I'm the one. I mean, how am I, how are my friends going to take this? Will they ever think this is worthwhile to become partners with me in ministry? Um, you know, um, I was fired by the senior pastor of the church I worked at before this one. And uh, it was really difficult for me. It was really difficult for me. And um, I, I did my best to, even though, even though I knew that, I mean, there's like, why work for somebody who wants to fire you? I mean, seriously, think about it for a minute. Am I going to fight for my job so I can work for this guy for the next three years? Who obviously wants me gone. So I knew I was going to resign. All right. But I made his life hell at the next board meeting. I mean, I brought up every reason why this was totally wrong, out of the blue, didn't make any sense, strategically stupid. Um, you know. And I got the board pissed off at him. They were consoling me after the meeting, you know. And he looked like an administrative jerk. And I loved it. And then I left. Well, after a while, the Holy Spirit starts nudging me, saying, Mike, you probably should go and reconcile with your former senior pastor. And I thought, oh, okay, fine. And so I called a meeting, and we got together. I don't remember where it was. It was some coffee shop someplace. And so we sat down, and I said, you know what? I am really sorry. If I had known what God was doing in my life, if I had known that he was taking me out of the situation there so I could be doing what I'm doing now, I would have gone gladly. And I would have blessed you in my departure. And I'm so sorry that I made your life difficult during that meeting and shortly thereafter with the stuff I brought up. If I had to do it over again, I would just resign Gratefully. And then he looked at me and he said, well, I really can't say I would have done anything differently. It just might have taken longer. <laughs> and I went, you stop. <clears throat> okay, fine. I'll take it. What you're saying is you still believe that firing me was the right thing to do and that uh, you just would have gone through the proper channels and it still would have happened just a little bit longer period of time so that you would have had all your T's crossed and your I's dotted. And I went, okay, fine. That's the best that we got. But at least it's something. You know what I'm saying? At least it's something. I mean, I literally thought about thanking him in the acknowledgments of my book, I want to thank this senior pastor for firing my ass because my life has been nothing but amazing since. Thank you. <laughs> you obviously were hearing God and I was not. I mean, I really almost thought about doing that, and I thought that might come across a little bit du duplicitous. So I decided not to. But I guess then I talk about it here at SCUM, and it'll be on the podcast, and now everybody will know I'm a jerk. Okay, so. You know, a lot of you are in difficult situations right now, conflicts with people that, that really aren't theological, they're not moral, and you need to straighten them out with people here in the church just so we can maintain some kind of unity. Um, I know that's a scary proposition. I really do. So I'll tell you what. We're going to give you a chance. We're going to have some prayer over here in the prayer 
room right after I speak, during the last worship set. You can go over there and you can pray about the situation, that God will give you strength, that he would maybe bring in an arbitrator. It's one of the things that Paul did here, is he, he asked for a guy, he calls him loyal yoke fellow or whatever he calls him. His name is Sisygos or Sisygos in Greek. Might have been a proper name. Paul's just doing a play on words. Listen, your name means loyal yoke fellow, so guess what? I got a job for you to do. I want you to try and help these two women come to some kind of understanding. Maybe it's impossible for you to settle this thing out with somebody by yourselves. Bring a trusted mentor, a Bible study leader, someone on staff, a, a, a council person, someone you respect from the outside to in, come in and to kind of mediate that problem. Bring them in. It's what the Scripture kind of teaches us. But you're too scared to even go that way, so let's pray about it first, okay? you got an opportunity right away after church. You want to do it by yourself at home? I don't care. But bring it before the Lord. Ask for the strength to do the right thing, to have the right heart, to put unity in the church as a very, very high priority and your own preferences pretty low. Ask to be willing to take it on the chin if you have to. Again, as long as it's not theological or moral, this is the proper way to go about it. But maybe you're not involved in a conflict right now. Maybe people you know and love are involved in a conflict. What are you going to do? How are you going to make it better? How can you not make it worse? Well, I think you can refuse to fuel the fight. Like Paul, you can refuse to take sides. I mean, Paul doesn't take sides here. He doesn't say to Sintiki, you're right, your sister is wrong. Don't take sides. Urge them. Plead with them, like the Apostle Paul is, to work out their differences. I can tell you it's taken other people sometime in my life whom I respect in the Lord to have me go and work things out with people because I wouldn't do it normally because I don't like pain. I don't like conflict. Maybe you're the person that God will use to push them in the direction of what they really need to do because you don't just sit in their corner going, yeah, she's so bad, you're so good. Maybe you say, you know what, you're both good. You're both good. And this is a bad situation. Work it out. There's a story here that I love, I'm going to tell, that kind of also illustrates how to act when people that you know are in a conflict. It comes from a book called The Fall of the Fortresses about World War II. The author's name is Elmer Bendinger. And he was on a B-17 doing missions over Germany. And this is what he says. Our B-17, the Tondaleo, was barraged by flak from Nazi anti-aircraft guns. This was not unusual, but on this particular occasion, our gas tanks were hit. Later, as I reflected on the miracle of a 20-millimeter exploding shell that's like the size of your hand. Of a 20-millimeter shell piercing the fuel tank without touching off an explosion, our pilot, Ben Fox, told me it was not quite that simple. On the morning following the raid, Ben had gone down to ask our crew chief for that unexploded shell as a souvenir of our unbelievable luck. The crew chief told Ben that not just one shell but 11 had been found in the gas tanks. 11 unexploded shells where only one was sufficient to blast us out of the sky. It was as if the sea had been parted for us. Even after 35 years, so awesome an event as this leaves me shaken, especially after I heard the rest of the story from Ben. 
He was told that the shells had been sent to the armorers to be diffused. The armorers told him that intelligence had picked them up. They could not say why at the time, but Ben eventually sought out the answer. Apparently, when the armorers opened up each of those shells, they found no explosive charge. They were clean as a whistle and just as harmless. Empty? Not quite all of them. One contained a carefully rolled up piece of paper. On it was a scrawl in the Czech language. The intelligence people scoured our base for a man who could read Czech. Eventually, they found one person to decipher the note. It set us marveling. Translated, the note read, This is all we can do for you now. This is all we can do for you now. You see, Mary's mother and father were from Czechoslovakia. And during the war, as young people, they were conscripted to work in German factories. There are munitions factories for the Nazi armies in Czechoslovakia. And what was going on in this particular munitions factory was that Czech people were not putting in the explosive charges into the 20-millimeter shells in hopes that somehow they might help people not die. So here's the challenge for us. When people we love are at war, what can we do to help defuse the situation? How can we not add to the explosive charges already going off in their battle? We can pray for them. We can urge them to reconcile. We can offer to mediate the situation. Because unity as a body is of such importance that the Apostle Paul brings up individual arguments in a letter to the whole church. Let's pay attention, scum of the earth. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask your help. We ask your help to not only work out the conflicts in which we find ourselves, but Lord, also to diffuse the conflicts in those around us in the church. That we could be a healing bomb. That we could be people who help them out and help your church to be the kind of church that makes you proud and that shows to the rest of the world that you indeed dwell among us because we love one another. Jesus, we're asking for your help in this. Amen.